Have you ever found yourself wondering about how artificial intelligence and faith intersect? My name is Elias Kruger. And I am Maggie Bender. And you are listening to the AI Theology Podcast, where faith and technology interact, taking you into an interesting and mind-challenging dialogue. Here we talked about how emerging technologies can align with the flourishing of all of life. Join us and expand your mind with topics like AI ethics, AI for good, guest interviews, and more. And our first episode is Faith, AI, and the Climate Crisis, where we'll be diving into a few questions to deepen this conversation. I figured this would be a great topic for us to start. Uh, we are in an age where a big story of climate crisis is, is part and, and permeates everything that we do and think about. Um, it is certainly a big part of, uh, of the technology story, and it's definitely a big part of the faith story. Um, but those don't always really connect or meet in the same place. So I think it's a great place for us to start this dialogue, start this conversation to see how we can, from both a faith perspective and an AI and you know, technology perspective, talk and address uh, this climate crisis that we're all under. In. That's a great point. I think all too often, we are looking at this conversation from one perspective or the other. And this is a great way to kick off where we're looking at from both perspectives. Let's go ahead and start with a verse for this first question. And God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Genesis 1.28 If we interpret Genesis 1.28 as subdue the earth, what are the implications for faith, AI, and the climate crisis? What if we translated it as guide or cultivate instead of simply subdue? That is uh, it's a great point. So let me tell you a little anecdote that happened to me this morning. I was uh, driving back. I was, I was taking, my, taking my girls to school. I was driving back and listening to a podcast because, you know, I love podcasts. And the speaker on the podcast was talking about, of course, the, the recent conflict right now in Russia and Ukraine. And he was describing, basically saying that Russian tanks are subduing Ukraine right now. They're entering Ukraine to subdue the nation. And that just stopped me on the tracks because I knew we would be talking about this idea of subduing. And I think that illusion there expresses well how this idea of subduing can be seen in a military kind of domination type situation where we are trying to uh, subdue, right, to take control over nature, right? And this, in, and if I think if we're honest, right, within Western tradition, that really has has been the way that we have interpreted this. And, and there is a good reason for it. In, in part, when you go to the verb in Hebrew, you see that it is actually used in other parts of the Bible where there are either a military rule or a government involved. So there is the sense of hierarchy, of control that, that lives in it, right? That doesn't mean that we're tied to that, but it's important to see that that's kind of where it comes from. So in, 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 the, in 1967, American professor of history, Lynn White, published a highly influential article in the Journal of Science entitled The Historical Roots of Right Ecological Crisis. In that article, he basically pinned Western Christianity, and specifically that verse, as the main reason why we are in this ecological crisis. 
Now, one could say, and I would agree, that's a very reductionist view to try to ping a whole crisis that we are today on one verse or, or even just on Christianity. With that said, I think he is touching on a very important point, which is that with this mandate, right, and how it was interpreted, there was this sense that we needed to come to nature and take control of it, right? And that ended up becoming the foundation for colonial enterprises, or how we, you know, if you look at the North American example, how we have taken over the continent, right, and subdued it with our technology and our progress, right? And here's kind of where technology comes in, because in many ways, technology is often seen as a way to subdue nature. Now, I do want to add this real quick, because I think when we talk about nature, the concept of nature also has changed. In the past, the nature and wild had more of a connotation of danger, right? In some ways, we live in nice houses today that are sheltered from the elements, from, from, from danger, right? And so now we look at nature as this nice pet, right, that we have that we can just go and visit in at our whim. And this is not necessarily how humanity has seen nature, right? So we need to take that context as well. And to see that the idea of maybe taming nature still has some value, right? But now how do we do that in a time of climate crisis, right? So Maggie, what do you think? You know, I really like that you brought up the whole concept of subduing and and the, this military element. Um, and I think like as we're, we're looking at that and we hyper-focus on it, I think there's a tendency sometimes to like overdo it in a certain sense. Mm -hmm. So yes, in the Bible, other locations, it's also used in some military or hierarchical conceptions. But if we take a step back and look at the entire narrative of the Bible together, um, we can see that, that there, there can be different connotations that are added onto it. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that I wanted to, to kind of bring out here is, you know, I've heard this comment before about in this particular verse and the Western Christianity. I would almost say that I'm wondering if this is also another modifier would be modern Christianity in general. Older uh, concepts of Christianity really focus in on the common good. And if you're really focused on the common good, it changes the perspective from being kind of microscopic focused to having a like a long view and seeing the interconnectivity of everything. And with that, I think it just it, that that idea of common good lends itself more to kind of understanding from like the the stewardship or the guidance kind of perspective as opposed to to a very reductionistic subdue you know just mm -hmm. in one one like sliver of definition yeah no no i, I and, and i think that that's that's part of of this discussion right so can we kind of I know it's a, a word used a lot in, in vogue nowadays, deconstruct that subdue and domination, right? And and really focus on the elements that better fit our time in history, right? So I want to say two things about that. One of them is absolutely we need to have a new relationship with nature, one that respects, that honors and reveres. And we have lost that, right? And so I think there's there is a what some have called this movement to re-enchant the West, which is this idea of going back to nature, going back and seeing its wonder. And in some ways, learning from the First Nations, learning their appreciation and their connection with nature. So absolutely, we need to do that. The second one, though, is a movement around, okay, it's not about domination. It's not even about taming. But now I feel like we also need to work with nature in this climate crisis. So in other words, I don't think, and this is my opinion here, that the solution is for us to simply step back 
and rewild the world, right? And just if humans would just stop polluting, stop doing, yes, we do need to change. But if it's not just stepping back and trying to go back to a pristine natural state, I don't think that's going to do it. We're probably too far along. That would not, you know, sustain life. So we have a new work to do, a new movement where we're working with nature to address this climate crisis, right? Exactly. And I think that th that is the key element here, right? We, we can't go back. We can't just be a bunch of Luddites and, and, and go mm -hmm. back. We have to figure out how it works with this new reality. So even within architecture, office buildings, having green walls inside mm. of the office mm -hmm. as ways that not necessarily technology, though it would probably include some bit of like engineering to make that actually work, but ways in which we can lead our lives and honor that which is around us. Your last point that you had made around uh, the nature having a connotation of danger. The one thing that really stood out to me is I know a lot of folks in Alaska. And when you are in Alaska, you need to be, there are so many stories about tourists dying because they don't respect nature. Mm. And instead of approaching it as, and constructing it as fear of nature or danger of nature, which would prompt you to want to dominate and subdue it. Mm. It's an honor. It's a posture of respect and making sure that you understand where you fit into this great big wild world. And so I think part of it is having a healthy understanding of humans and our place in this world and embracing that and respecting that which is around us. Absolutely. Yeah, no, no, great, great point, Maggie. And and I think that's a good lead into our next question, right, which it kind of leans more on the faith side, which is, can we worship God, or some would call it the universe, or, you know, a higher intelligent being, you could place whatever you want there. But can we worship God through creation? I like this question. And one of the things that this question brings up and connects back to the first is that it depends on what you mean when you say worship. Do you have a reductionistic understanding of worship where you are simply like there's only one type? Or can you take a step back and look at a bigger picture and see where it all fits in? So for example, the, the Catholics have this great concept of veneration and then worship. And they have both of these for a reason. And the veneration is a type of elevated respect, you can say, that allows you to worship that which the entity points to. So insofar as creation, as nature was created by God, us taking a step back and venerating it or respecting it or having a healthy respect for it are ways in which we can worship the person that created it through that. And that brings up a concept of mediating theology, which is a little different distinction than maybe a, a Protestant believer would, would understand. But what it does is it allows you, again, to kind of come back to this understanding of the world as a system. Mm. It was created, and we respect that creation, and we honor God who created it by respecting it in the same way that for us, it's always, it's nice. It, it, it makes you feel good when somebody likes something that you created, mm. whether that's an idea or maybe you created a craft and they appreciate it or respect it or a meal. It's almost like one of those things. How would you feel if you, you created a meal for your friends and they threw it away in the trash? <laughs> Yes. No, absolutely. That's a great. I, I was just having a 
you're saying that and a few things came to my mind. One of them is uh, I have, I am not a great cook by any point, but I started making soups and on the weekends every now and then I will invite my brother to come in and, and the last few times he has specifically said, can you make that soup? And it's work. I mean, it's it, like, I, it's, um, and you have to prepare. It takes about an hour to prepare and all of that. But I just remember the joy of doing all that and just seeing him just love that soup. And it was a delight that made all that work worth it. Right. And it just totally contextualized it like, oh my gosh, in Sunday, do you want to spend an hour in the kitchen? You know, when you do that all you know, week or whatever, you, you just might not want to do that. But that idea of seeing him enjoy, that's, it was affecting me. Right. So, so if we can place in uh, the creator here, the source of nature, the creator of everything, that when we enjoy it, when we take care of it, right, because he's eating, he's not throwing away, he's not, you know, putting some weird salt in it that I wouldn't like it. He's enjoying it for what it is. And now suddenly there is a sense in which, you know, if, if we define worship as just pleasing, uh, pleasing God, then there's, there's definitely a clear connection there that when we treat nature with reverence, respect, and we delight in it, that we are you know, worshiping God, which also brings me back to your previous point, Maggie, which was about Alaska, right? And this idea of reverence and fear, which can also easily become worship. And 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 some may say, well, you're worshiping nature, but no, you're really respecting nature, maybe because nature is pointing you to something bigger than yourself. So now it is like, that's where maybe the worship through nature happens, is that by us recognizing our smallness, recognizing, you know, the immensity of the universe and our vulnerability as humans, right? That even today with all this technology, when a big thunderstorm comes in, like you immediately feel that sense of fear that I could die <laughs> right now. I could die, right? So, yes. Yes, I definitely agree with, with that because it is that smallness, right? Um, mm -hmm. After college, I went to St. Peter's in Rome. And the mm -hmm. thing that I was immediately struck by and coming from a Protestant background, I finally got how when Catholics talk about the church building as, as a form of worship, because you feel like you're an inch tall and with just the grandeur of the building. That's the exact feeling was one of smallness, but connected to something so much bigger than yourself. And I think that's the point in all of this going back is understanding our connection to the creator as a part of the system, but also connected to the system. No, that's that's, that's a great picture there. It also reminds me of uh, John Muir, uh, one of my favorite, you know, American thinkers, philosophers, and, and conservatives, uh, one of the first to kind of push this idea of national parks in the United States in the early 20th century. And I think one of his writings, he talks about these places being cathedrals, right? Literally cathedrals of nature right cathedrals which evokes exactly what you're talking about right that both that sense of smallness also that sense of connection both to nature around us but also to something beyond right to to transcendence to god to spirituality and so i would say that even in my own journey like you starting from a protestant background which was very concerned and focused on not worshiping idols let there be nature or otherwise that there was this fixation on the transcendent and there wasn't really a lot of formation around how do i connect with nature and then to god and that i found that more recently as i moved 
you know, progress from that, that I have seen nature to become truly a, a great place of spiritual connection and worship. And, and I, I, I would say definitely nowadays, that's where I feel most connected to God is in nature. Since we're talking about connections, let's go ahead and let's try another connection point and go from the big to the small and think about ways in which machine learning itself could tactically help to combat the climate change. Yes, this is wonderful, Maggie, because again, this is this is the beauty of this dialogue, right? I would love to stay in our wonderful musings about nature and cathedrals and faith. And you bring me right back to earth with your comment there. And I think that's true, right? Because our worship, our, all of this, we have a crisis, right? And to just simply stand in nature in awe will not solve a crisis. <laughs> so uh, what I think it's amazing is, is yes, is, is that machine learning and AI technologists are actually taking more of a leading role nowadays to help combat climate change. There's a few examples of that. And we, we spoke in our blog. One of them is using image recognition to track fi uh, fires in the Amazon. It's a, a great, fantastic work that uh, a group in Brazil is doing where they are using uh, machine learning to better understand the satellite images of the Amazon forest and be able to pinpoint to a very high level of precision where fires are going. Usually those are illegal fires, right? And then they can call the authorities and the authorities can go there. And, and so they are actually helping, again, using machine learning to, you know, for good to save uh, forests from being uh, illegally burned. So that is definitely one way. I think the second way is that climate is a highly, highly, Highly complex topic, highly complex discipline, and using models to help understand it are a key, right? To help predict, for example, what would it mean for climate to go one degree higher? And even one degree Celsius every year makes a huge difference. So now we have this plethora of models being built to try to understand that. And I think sometimes people lose sight of when the news about climate change is confusing. It's because we really don't know what could happen. But these models are there to create pictures of what could happen. And they're not always 100% accurate, but they, they really give us a sense of what to look for and what to avoid. I think it's enough to send the alarm that we don't want that to happen. But if we come to a point where that's too late, which some may say we might already be there, it can help us be better prepared for it. So both prevention and adaptation. I like that. And I will say for myself, working with technology and machine learning over the last several years, one of the things that keeps on coming back about machine learning and when I'm trying to communicate to folks when they should use it is that it's a scalpel mm -hmm. and not a shotgun because it helps you cut through massive amounts of data to get to a single answer. Of course, the difficulty always is you have to have a precise enough question in order for that to be effective. But you can see even within the first example that how that shows up, right? So you have forest fires or major visuals of like an entire area, the Amazon, satellite images, and then we're just going to focus on fires. And then when we focus on recognizing the fires, we have a process of how we deal with that. And then that allows us to cut that one thing off and then move on to something bigger. So um, I like just the pragmatism in that, but then how also it really helps to kind of show where models are super effective. And even I know I've been hearing a lot uh, in the news recently about the one degree, 1.5 degree increase 
um, that was derived from technology because they know that that's the breaking point now, right? Because you mm -hmm. have enough data to project that. Um, and I think that's the other beauty of machine learning models is that they can come to some pretty good clarity on very complex things. Um, again, it takes a lot of work to get there, but that's where I think its real source of value is. Not that it's going to come and rescue all of us from everything and answer all of our questions, but that mm -hmm. it will help us answer the right questions. Right. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, to continue to weave here the theme of, of, of kind of machine learning being a pragmatic tool for problems, I, I do want to kind of maybe lean a little bit on the faith side and to say that machine learning models can actually be prophetic, right? So they have in some ways a prophetic tool. They are speaking of a future that could happen if X, Y, and Z is done or not done, which in some ways, if you think about it, that is, especially when we look at you know, the Hebrew scriptures and talks about those prophets, that's what they were there. They were there speaking of, if you continue on these lines, this is what's going to happen, because that's exactly what models are doing. They're taking the past, right? They're looking at where the trends are going, they extrapolate into the future, and they're showing this is what's going to happen. I remember uh, even when COVID was happening, how these models really were critical for governments to make decisions about when to close and when not to close. So they already played a prophetic role there. Now we have an even bigger one with the climate crisis. Agreed. I, I love how you connected that up to prophecy, because I, I had um, a professor uh, in my master's program that when we were studying eschatology within scriptures, mm -hmm. and you always say that eschatology is in the protology, and the protology mm -hmm. is in the eschatology. So the creation is in the end, and the end is in the creation. So it's kind of like this circle, but like this mm -hmm. kind of like self-fulfilling prophecy, and that's exactly it. That prophets came to tell us, hey, if you keep on doing this, it's going to be bad. Mm -hmm. And the implicitness of that, those statements are stop doing that, right? Mm -hmm. And the same thing with machine learning models, you know, like they can maybe recommend good things to do, but it's always kind of extrapolating the past, right? Mm -hmm. And those models are good in so far to see if you need also need to do a course correct <laughs> on where you're going, right? right? Um, yep, not only absolutely. to tell you, like, and that's the thing where I think some people get overused models where they think that the model is going to tell them what to do. It's not going to tell you what to do. It will tell you if you continue in the way that you're going, you know, this is the most likely outcome. Yeah. And, and this is, again, this is interesting. I mean, we keep on speaking about it forever, but I, I do want to think about, uh, let, me, let me flip things here a little bit, right? So I think we've been talking about how technology can speak about nature, how technology can help nature. But there is a there is a, a circular direction that there is a relationship there where nature could actually help technology, right? And we don't always think that way, but there's this concept called biomimicry, which basically what it means is scientists and technologists who are looking at nature for ideas on how to solve certain problems. So they look at how a bee is, is creating honey and they say, well, maybe this could be useful for manufacturing, right? And so that's just kind of a small example. So I, that's just the one that I can come to mind. But I love how, again, there's a bit of a relationship there where technology is doing something, helping us with nature, but also nature now is coming and changing technology. Uh, can we maybe talk a little bit about some examples of biomimicry uh, in technology? Yeah, no, absolutely. I like this. So not only is faith speaking to technology, but also um, the reverse as well. So for biomimicry, like I feel like the easiest and most like mundane example is just the idea of fractals uh, and sprint pointing, you know, is the fundamental kind of 
understanding um, of how you want to point work. And um, this idea of kind of maybe relative being relative to something else, right? Mm-hmm. And I do, and I've actually seen this a little bit more in some of like the cloud systems. So AWS, mm-hmm. Azure, they're creating mm-hmm. a system. Mm-hmm. It's not mm-hmm. just about creating a single thing. It's an entire system. And this is one thing that I think from like, if you look around how nature works, it's not always this like discrete cause and effect thing that happens. There's things that have multiple causes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there's things that are caused by a chain of events as well. So like, I think that like as technology is starting to mature as these cloud platforms are starting to mature i feel like they're going more and more into this understanding um, of system and that's where mm-hmm. i would say that that i see the most what about you yeah no, this is a great example is it, it makes me think about the word ecosystem right and how we are using that sometimes to describe human systems machine systems you know technology is nothing more than a connection of systems which are nothing more than a mimicry of ecosystems you know echo echo environments right that have so many factors that, that if, if one thing happens it, and that's why it's, it's it's always so hard but what i love about ecosystem and the system thinking that nature provides us is that there's multiple factors. There's multiple ways of looking at something. And you can't just focus on one thing, focus on the piece and miss, miss the connection between the pieces. And that's what systems thinking is about. It's about not looking at parts itself, but how they connect with each other, which again brings me to faith. Part of the problem I see in my own Christian heritage and faith is a lack of connection with nature and with the universe. Right. It is a focus what some have called anthropocentrism, the focus on humans. And unfortunately, usually that means man and white man in a lot of cases, which is absolutely unfortunate. Right. So what if we can expand our faith in our theology to think more about the connection with others? And that is uh, a great place where we can kind of start wrapping up this conversation. So what do you think, Maggie? No, I, I think this uh, this theme of connection has has been the thing that has been consistent throughout this conversation. An interconnection between both God and humanity, understanding that when we are in this world and how we're treating not only our fellow humans, but also the nature in, in the environment around us, that we are also connecting ourselves to the creator beyond that environment. Absolutely. And this is our our first podcast. Again, I feel like we could keep on talking, but, uh, you know, we're going to have to to wrap it up right now. Um, I hope that you are listening, that you can in some ways be part of this conversation and that as you listen, you're being challenged to think new things. Always feel free to, of course, send us a note. And, uh, you know, we, we want to start the conversation here. We want to expand it to you. I hope you talk, you talk about this to, you know, your, your significant other, to your, your children, to your friends. Talk about it um, because that's what we're here for, to spark conversation, to spark dialogues in these areas. That's how we believe that we can bring new solutions to these complex problems we have in this world and how we can actually work together. And that's what we're here for. So. So we're coming to the end of this first episode, but don't worry, we will have new episodes coming up in the near future. 
and obviously stay tuned. Until then, don't forget to follow us here on your chosen podcast platform on Facebook and Instagram at AI Theology. And goodbye. Goodbye. Have a wonderful day. <laughs>